Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This is a science podcast for March 4th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, staff writer Eric Stockstead. We're going to talk about the ins and outs of the first global treaty on plastic pollution. Next, we hear from some of the dozens of Black physicists interviewed for a series of stories on how to improve the persistent lack of diversity in U.S. physics. Now we have staff writer Eric Stockstead. We're going to talk about the first global treaty on plastic pollution. Hi, Eric. Hey, Sarah. Welcome back. (laughs) Nice to talk with you again. Let's talk about the parties to this treaty. How many countries are involved and what are these first steps that are going to be happening this week, actually? Right. So what is kicking off is a meeting of the United Nations Environment Assembly. So there are, what, 193 countries, all countries, I think, right, are party to this. They'll be sending negotiators to Nairobi. They'll come up with a committee that will figure out how it will be negotiated. There have been a lot of committees already formed, scientific advisory committees to provide advice on what should happen with scientific information, for example. There have been ministerial meetings that have created draft proposals and, and sketched out what might be discussed. The whole process is going to, it will probably take years to come up with something that's signed by everyone. This treaty is going to address all the plastic pollution in the ocean obviously. But there's also so much more going on with plastics getting out into the environment. Can you outline some of the main challenges the treaty might tackle? So the goal of the treaty is to try and help stop plastic pollution at the source, not just prevent it from accumulating in the ocean. So that means looking at how we make it, why we make it, how people use it, and how people recycle it. Right. That is all under discussion. Can you talk about the magnitude of the problem, plastic pollution? It goes to 11. (laughs) So, right. What I mean is um, the estimate for the amount of plastic waste entering the ocean every year is 11 million tons. My goodness. Which is a lot of plastic. I mean, one calculation is, you know, that's the weight of a cargo ship every day entering the ocean. Now, Obviously, a lot more plastic than that is made. 380-something million tons are being 
manufactured every year. So clearly there's a lot of other plastic that we want to handle responsibly, right? I mean, ideally not bury it in a, a landfill or have it erode and end up in the air like plastic does, right? And these little particles are circulating the planet, ending up everywhere. Or in our bloodstreams, in placenta. At this point, if you look and you don't find plastic somewhere, that's the headline, yeah. One of the things they're definitely going to have to sort out is how to quantify this, how to track pollution. What are some of the hurdles there? It is figuring out where the plastic is, what it's used for, and crucially for the problem of pollution or waste, where does it get diverted, right? Where does it end up accidentally in the environment? So you need to figure these things out from the starting point where you take fossil fuels and you convert them into the feedstock for virgin plastic, and then you make the product. Some of it ends up on the factory floor, right? Where does that go? Some of it ends up uh, in a shipping container, washed overboard as it crosses the Pacific. Where does that go? How much is lost there? How much is tossed out a car window? Researchers refer to the that as emissions, which is, you know, we think about emissions, right, as like CO2 right. from factories or, or cars. But they're talking about these as like emissions into the environment. So where is the plastic being emitted? One thing that's starting is people are beginning to do that sort of accounting for cities. So you try to figure out where is the plastic leaving the city? And that's a lot of work to try and tabulate all these things up. Another approach is to try and track it through the industrial pipeline. Get information about where it's lost in the manufacturing process. That hopefully, right, is being tracked to some degree by industry, because if they lose that plastic before they sold it, that's... Awesome money. Right. You'd want to know that. Hopefully they know that. Hopefully scientists start to get their hands on that information and, and make sense of it. So once this accounting is better understood, where to track, how to track, what's the idea next? Is it just to do interventions to reduce these numbers? Do they have to set up what the limits are on plastic pollution? The goal is really to improve recycling and reduction first and ultimately end up with more of what's called a circular economy so that the end product is not waste. The used plastic is a resource to be made into more new plastic. That's got several benefits. One, of course, is that you're not using fossil fuels to create more plastic and less is going into the environment. So how much is recycled now and how much could that number go up? That's one of those things that right now is being estimated. Hopefully we'll know that better. But the figure is less than 10% globally in the U.S. for sure. That's a lot of wasted resource, right? 90%. Yeah. And what about microplastics where the plastic's breaking down and getting smaller and smaller and it becomes kind of like a molecule running around or microbeads are used in certain kinds of products as well? Microplastics have gotten a lot of attention more and more from researchers. Partly it was beginning just to figure out how much is out there. Now the real imperative is to figure out what sort of health effects or ecological effects are caused by microplastic, right? We already know that large pieces of plastic floating in the ocean are bad. We know that lost fishing gear will, will ensnare and kill whales. There's no doubt that we need to reduce the amount of those hazardous items in the ocean. 
The question, right, is these tiny pieces and the evidence is building up that they can cause harm to organisms in nature. We know less about what the impact is to humans. We do know that many kinds of plastic has additives in it that are harmful. Endocrine disruptors, BPA, the flame retardants, phthalates. So these are all things that are not polymer, but they're, you know, helping make it flexible, helping it prevent it from bleaching in the sun or making it more heat resistant, stuff like that. Yes, they add properties. Now, BPA, I think that is the molecule. I think that's the polymer that really makes helps make polycarbonates do what they do and helps the epoxy resins and can linings and coatings. But right, what does it mean for humans to breathe or eat or drink microplastics? We don't have a good handle yet on the exact risk. But it sounds like going into this treaty or into this process is to figure out how much there is and then how much of a risk it is and then set a limit at some point on how much ends up in the environment. I think the idea is you have that nations would come up with their own targets for how much plastic is recycled, how much plastic is emitted to the environment. We would monitor that so we'd have a good idea, just like with CO2, how much progress nations are making towards those goals. And then you increase the amount of recycling and over time that decreases the amount of plastic pollution. There are some single-use plastics that you probably want to keep that way for medical purposes, sterility, but there are other things that should be considered for replacement. Is that another approach they might take? That's already happening in many places. Bans on plastic bags, straws, plastic beads, micro beads, and cosmetics, right? So that's cities, states, countries. They're making those bans. So scaling that up, that seems like a pretty doable step for a global treaty. Banning or trying to come up with substitute products for things like medical products. It's just really, right? The plastic, it's a great material. It's light. It doesn't break. Putting plastic in cars reduces their weight, which makes them more fuel efficient. Yeah, there's definitely a case made for plastic in a lot of settings, but there is a chunk of this stuff that could be recycled, could be replaced. We know that. We just need to figure out which things, how much, and what the impact will be. Right. So the committee is being assembled, hopefully, this week, and then they have some amount of time to come up with a global treaty proposal. When would that be? This is all happening, being hosted by the United Nations Environment Program. They've set out a goal of trying to get the whole framework together in by the next time they meet, and that's usually every two years. We'll see. They admit it's highly ambitious, the encouraging thing is that there's more and more momentum for this. Countries are endorsing it. The United States last year, the White House said that they endorsed this process. So there is, you know, there's political momentum to make it happen. Yeah, there's a really detailed commentary piece in science that I saw that you linked to that really goes into all this nitty gritty. Yes, that policy form, it's a product by people who have been thinking really hard for a long time about this. And it's a, it's a really helpful overview of some of the issues that need to be solved and what they see as smart ways to achieve it. What do you think some of the hardest things are going to be for this committee to figure out? With anything, right? What's the definition of success? Yeah. When is the ocean clean enough? You could say, ideally, we'd have a closed loop. We don't emit any plastic. We know where all of it goes. That's beyond highly ambitious, but when is the water clean enough to drink? Right now, they're hard questions to answer. 
also, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that there are vested interests in producing more plastic and supplying fossil fuels to make the plastics. There might be political opposition. To some extent, how clean does it need to be? It'd be nice to know, but we already know that it's too polluted. There's a case that we can already start making progress and every bit of progress will help. Do you see a lot of parallels to the process for how the planet has been tackling climate change? There are some interesting parallels. We talked about the term emissions and trying to reduce emissions, right? We're making more and more plastic and more and more of that every year is going into the environment. Same as CO2 and other greenhouse gases going into the environment. With carbon pollution, it was industrialization of a lot of legacy pollution from rich countries. And the same with plastic, right? I mean, this being used more and more in the developing world, it's an important thing to use. So who should get to use more of it? There are a lot of similar thorny issues. Is this right from your story that this idea of having kind of a menu of options for plastic reduction instead of a prescription for everybody to do the same thing? Is that another parallel? Having flexibility with policymakers as opposed to tying their hands or telling them what to do, that's going to make people more amenable to participating. There are a lot of things that have been tried. You know, I didn't link to this in my story, but there's a really fantastic long document that was put together at Duke University that's a summary of many, many, many policy measures from bans of straws to more ambitious actions. And it's a great resource if you want to sort of look at what's been tried. So, yeah, I think it's unlikely that this is going to be as binding as some other global treaties that have been tried, partly because these are really desirable, valuable products, right? Some of them that are made. So we need to figure out how to do it better, as opposed to getting rid of them entirely. Thanks, Eric. Okay, always nice to chat. Eric Stackstead is a staff news writer for science covering environmental issues. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peacebuilding, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast network of international researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality. This week, Science is publishing a set of stories on the failure of U.S. physics departments to recruit and retain Black scientists. The package includes striking data on the dearth of Black students at both the undergraduate and graduate level. Today, we're going to hear from two of the dozens of Black physicists interviewed for the stories about their experiences in the field. This is Willie S. Rockward, Chair and Professor of Physics at Morgan State University. He describes being part of the first-ever cohort of Black graduate physics students at Georgia Tech 
and the importance of their black hole study group that they formed. We came there in the fall of 90, myself and four other African-American students. Five of us is Georgia Tech in physics, all in physics. An intentional recruiting strategy by the chair at the time, Dr. Henry Balk. And Dr. Balk helped us, well, found a location for us, a little room that we could study in. We can all come, when we come in, we could lay our stuff down. If you saw the design, you can tell, okay, it was between two big instructional labs. But it was, it was, it was a nice space. And we said, like, well, it's, it's five black students. So, um, hmm, it's a room. It's, hey, hey, let's call it the black hole. <laughs> you know, the department, you know, they were wondering, what is black hole at? What is this black hole? And other graduate students, so they would start coming. So they start saying, hey, let, uh, can, can I meet you in the black hole or something like that? So, yeah, yeah, come on, come on, we can study. And he just started start breaking down a lot of barriers. And many of the barriers was mental. Sometimes it was a figmentation of our minds. With the black hole situation, okay, we were beginning to start learning each other, okay, because we all came from different backgrounds. We became family. You know, we just stayed in touch with each other's lives. Fact about it, I even married a couple of them. I'm also a minister, and they've been married ever since. Those who in physics know a bit about black holes. And one of the things about black holes is that it sucks everything in. But they believe on the other side of it, it spits light and energy out. It may, on this side of it, we may be pulling everything together. On the, on the opposite side of it, when it goes out, it puts energy and the positiveness out into the other side. That's the biggest part about the black hole. It really helped us to come together as a family. And not a family of just because we, you know, African-Americans. A family in, in the area of physics. Just not that many of us in physics. And and how we can also be a part of the physics community. So the black hole experience is going to be forever in my life and forever in my mind and forever in my heart because I just know through that experience, I'm able to be where I'm at now today and to continue to support others as they move forward. That was Willie S. Rockward, Chair and Professor of Physics at Morgan State University. And this is Fano Mulu Moore, a physics and astronomy instructor at Ames Community College in Greenlee, Colorado. Here she explains her life-changing transition from research to teaching and how it has given her a sense of purpose. Working with students has been life-changing for me. Greeley, Colorado is in the eastern side of Colorado. There are several different types of jobs that attracts a lot of immigrants. At least our set of students are so diverse, and you hear their stories, and you see how hard they work. It's not very frequently that I find a student who says, hey, I want to major in physics. I have had a few, so my job at that point is really to make sure they have all the classes they need to make the transfer. So the transfer to a four-year institution has to happen. I also connect them with several internships. And of course, you know, it's difficult to do that as well because, our again, our students are not the typical 18-year-old. Our students have full-time jobs, our families. I see my role as the facilitator because I always think of it. It's not lack of talent. It's just lack of opportunity. And actually, it seems like the scientific community is open to hiring people that might not look like them, which is a great thing. I felt like that was not the case when we were in graduate school. It's not always easy to be one of the few. In our program, there are, you know, less than a handful of people of color in space physics and solar physics. Thinking about the research world, it was just isolating. It was mainly data analysis. It was just not for me. So I knew that a little less <laughs> research and more interaction with students was what I felt would work for me. 
I had, you know, a CV full of like presentations and my publications heavy on research. That wasn't really relevant to transitioning to community colleges. So it was almost like I had to rewrite all of my, <laughs> my CV just because it just didn't fit. I feel like with more physicists who look like me in those teaching spaces, it will make it feel okay for our students. To this day, every time my first day of classes, there are students who are shocked to see me there. They come in and they look at the door, check the door, check their schedule. And then they come and say, is this calc-based physics? Because we have physics. Are you done here? I want that to go away. And yeah, even at Ames, I see that changing because they know who I am. So there's no surprise or the, the look on their face, which used to bother me. But now though, I'm like, come on in. And this is a chance for me to like knock down those walls. That was Fana Mubimore, a physics and astronomy instructor at Ames Community College at Greenlee, Colorado. Thanks to producer Joel Goldberg for conducting those interviews and editing those segments. Make sure you check out the full package. We'll be linking to it from the episode page at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast, or you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.